0: Good morning. I am constantly amazed how relevant Scripture is. Um, Stories that were written 3,000 years ago um, that are so completely useful and helpful for us in this day and age. Um, And Ruth chapter 3 is one of those passages where every word is critical. There is so much artistic beauty in the entire book of Ruth, uh, but in Ruth chapter 3, the words that are chosen and the allusions that are being made are just so rich. Um, uh, We're going to spend a couple of weeks in Ruth chapter 3, but for the history of the world, (laughs) until the last about 200 years, individuals were not very involved in choosing their own spouses. Um, families were involved, and in fact, in many, many parts of the world today still, um, the family is involved in choosing your spouse. Um, uh, In this show, um, the Jewish family, there was um, a matchmaker, someone that uh, both sides of the family were working with, um, and somehow marriages worked. Um, I think there is a sense in which um, we need to remember that Scripture does not tell us to marry the person we love. Scripture tells us to love the person you marry, okay? And all of this romance and um, falling in love, which is really probably infatuation anyways, um, all of that hasn't gotten us to much of a better place, has it, in terms of the health of marriages? I think if we just went into it recognizing I need to love the person I'm married to, even if there's a challenge there, we'd be way better off. I really do think we would be way better off. A similar situation is taking place in Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 3, Naomi is going to be the matchmaker for Ruth. She's going to be the one who says, hey, there's the guy. Here's what you need to do. Go make yourself available, and she actually proposes marriage to him. And in the middle of all of this, it's this same theme that we keep seeing again and again. In the middle of chaotic times, the book of Judges is the context of Ruth. Um, In the middle of a chaotic place, um, the last two horrible stories in the book of Judges are all related to Bethlehem. Now we're seeing a family in Bethlehem that is living with integrity, And today, we're going to see in the middle of a sexually charged scene, people still living with integrity. And all of this is putting together in the book of Ruth, God's sovereign control as he uses people as instruments of his chesed love. God is faithful in his love to us, but he uses people to distribute that around the world. Uh, Bruce Waltke summarizes the book of Ruth in a little bit of a complicated way, but I want you to stick with me. Um, Waltke uses the, the name I am to refer to God, so that's what he's doing here. He says, I am's sublime attribute of abundant Heset, help to the helpless is how he defines it, sustains his program of bringing salvation to earth through Abraham's seed. God is controlling through his Heset, his whole program. When his covenant people are utterly helpless to save themselves, he redeems them by demonstrating love and kindness, as we saw in the book of Judges. That attribute inspires true Israel to do the same, honoring their covenant commitment to I am. They serve him and redeem their covenant partners. Because God is faithful to us, we should be faithful to him and to one another. That's the message of the book of Ruth. That's what's going on there. Uh, putting that a little bit more simply, Catherine Sakefield says, human action is the vehicle for achieving divine blessing. God wants to distribute his love, his grace. God wants to, people to be kind to one another, um, and he wants to use you to be the vehicle of that. The problem for us in the 21st century is that most of us want to be the recipient of all of that grace and love and kindness. We don't want to be the vehicle of that. Um, As we are moving through the book of Ruth, we are are over halfway through, Uh, we are moving through this book that is reversing everything in the book. The book is going to start with a famine. It's going to end with a harvest. It's going to begin with deaths. It's going to end with a birth. It's going to end with bitterness and sorrow, and it's, it's going to begin with bitterness and sorrow. It's going to end with joy and happiness and celebration. It's, it's a great, great book. I've got three really significant uh, resources for you that are out at the counter. They're on the web. You can look at them. One is longer than what I usually put out there. It's four pages by John Piper on sexual purity. It's actually the entire chapter from his commentary um, uh, on Ruth, um, and, and it, is, it is the best, most inspiring thing I've read on sexual purity um, that, that I've ever read at a, at a short level. Um, I, I would encourage you to, to read this for your own benefit, for the benefit of your children, no matter how old they are. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, for your grandchildren, read this article. It is, it is clear, it is biblical, and it is inspiring the way that he writes it. Um, there's an article on Integrity in Hesed um, by Lawson Younger that is really kind of that idea that God is um, faithful and loyal in his love to us, and he expects us to respond by sharing that with others. And then there's one more overview by Al Ross that I think is really, really helpful. In this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to see the interactions of Ruth and Boaz primarily on the threshing floor, Okay. There's a lot going on in this passage. <laughs> the, the words that are chosen are pretty highly charged, and you'll see that. But what happens in this passage is there's going to be a conversation between Naomi and Ruth. Um, then Ruth is going to go to the barley threshing floor. There's going to be an interaction between Boaz and Ruth. And then Ruth is going to come back home, and she's going to report on what happened um, at the threshing floor. By the way, what, what happens at the end when... When Ruth comes home, Naomi says, who are you? Now, that's not because she's there you know, early in the morning. Oh, my gosh, who's coming into my house? It's a thief. No, here's her question. Who are you? Are you Mrs. Boaz yet? That's what she's, because she's, she has sent her away to propose the marriage. But we're going to start with this um, plan that Naomi has. And, and here's what we're going to see there. God often uses risky plans, and I just need to be open and honest with you. This is a risky plan. But risky plans are less risky when honorable people are involved. So God often uses risky plans, puts people in situations that don't make sense, puts people in in situations where bad things could happen, but when honorable people are involved, it accomplishes his purpose. That's what's happening in this passage. You're going to see Naomi, who's who's making a risk, risky plan, um, but she knows she's working with an honorable man. So even though she sends Ru- he, Naomi sends Ruth into a risky situation, she says, do whatever he says, because she knows he's a, an honorable man. We have already found out that he is a gibor Hael. He is a mighty warrior. Uh, he is a man of valor. That, that word for valor, virtuous, um, honorable is going to be used of Ruth in this passage as well. So, so Ruth is cooking up a risky plan, but she knows she's working with an honorable man. It's going to be okay. Um, now, Ruth has to um, submit to this risky plan, but it's from an honest woman that she has pledged her loyalty to. This is a woman who's been pretty honest. The hand of the Lord looks, looks like it's against me. My husband died. My boys died. I was in a foreign land. Um, my name means pleasant, Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. She's really honest with her life. And she's honest with what's going on. And, and Ruth understands that she can trust Naomi. Here's how the story begins. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Um, this is actually something that Naomi has said before when uh, Naomi was back in Moab after her husband and the, her two sons died, and she's left there with her two daughters-in-law, she says to the two daughters-in-law, you guys stay here in Moab. I'm going back home. You stay in Moab because you can find rest here. The, the idea is, is um, you can find marriage. You're, it's more likely that if you stay in Moab, you're going to be married there. Don't come with me. And, and Orpah actually says, yeah, you're right. And Orpah goes back to her, her people, but also to her gods. But that's the context in which Ruth says, I'm not going back to my people and my gods. I'm going with you and your God. And, and Ruth doesn't stay there to get married. She comes with Ruth and she says, I'll be loyal to you and I'll be faithful. And where you go, I will go. And, and I want to be there when you die. I'm going to be with you. This term, rest, is a fascinating word. I'm going to talk about it for a minute. Um, I'm going to make an application for it. The the word can be translated as security. Um, uh, It can be, uh, seek a husband for you would be probably an accurate translation. But the word itself is really loaded with, I think, really important terms for us. Um, The word itself, um, manuach, if you want to say it, Uh, the, the verb is nuach to rest. Let me give you a couple of people's comments on it, and then I'm going to apply this. Uh, the word manuach here means a place of tranquility and repose and refers to the condition of security and rest offered a woman in the Israelite society by marriage. The, the word that the Bible chooses to describe marriage is a word that means tranquility and repose. Um, it means rest, a resting place, That's how um, Lawson Younger describes it. Al Ross describes it this well. The noun, manuach, rest, is related to this verb, nuach. The verb is for setting things at rest, as in settling down and remaining in place, the ark after the flood. The the ark was floating around, and then it rested on Mount Ararat. Um, It can be used of insects. It's used of a butterfly that is fluttering and moving around kind of erratically, and then when it comes to rest, it... Manuachs. It it, it comes to rest. There's no more fluttering around. It's it's now found a a safe place to land. Um, It it is also used for reposing, being quiet, or having rest, such as rest on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, isn't exhaustion. It's not rest from exhaustion. It's rest because you're able to enjoy, because this Sabbath rest is modeled after God's rest, and God's rest is not because he was exhausted on the seventh day. God's rest is he finished his work and he sat back and he enjoyed it. So it's not rest from exhaustion. It's rest for enjoyment and rest to, to, to really focus on things that are um, important. It's, it's rest from your enemies. Now now some people are probably, going, okay, now you're talking about marriage. Um, it's not what I mean here. The noun can refer to the sanctuary of the Lord as the resting place. It's a place where you go, and you're not doing anything else. Um, you're, you're resting from everything. Your focus, to some level, it's, it's like being here at church. You, you're trying to push all the other things aside and rest and focus and stop and get back to some things that are very important. Dr. Ross goes on to say, the emphasis on tranquility and restfulness comes through in the use in Psalm 23 too. The waters of restfulness, he leads us beside still waters, the word still, still waters, that word is restful waters. Um, that's what a shepherd does. It it's, has this peaceful, tranquil feel to it. It's also used to rest from all your enemies. It refers to marriage as a place of rest. As a description of the blessed life in the land that God promised Israel, the word is most effective. It is, it is a word that means you're no longer striving and battling and fighting it out. Um, you're no longer fluttering and trying to figure out where you're going to land. You've got a landing spot. <laughs> and that landing spot is peaceful and restful. I, I would make some specific applications this way. Marriage is rest, and I want you to be thinking, is your marriage rest? Is it rest? Um, is there a sense of tranquility? Dawn and I had some interesting conversations about this this week. I really focused more on this idea of tranquility. Like, I love it when I'm able to come home, and it's calm, and, and it's, there's a, a, a restfulness. You come in, and, and, and it's just, oh, okay, this is where I want to be. Um, I'm resting from my work. She focused way more on the security idea. Her, her, her sense was much more, yeah, I, marriage is much more of a place where I'm secure, I'm safe. This is, this is where, and, and you know, it, it happens frequently. You know, when, when the two of us say, I would never say this to anybody else, but, um, and, and it often is, I'd never admit this to anybody else but you, but you're safe to do that, because you know there's security there, there's safety there. You, you don't have to flutter and worry about consequences. You're able to be re- really honest and say, I'm struggling with this. Um, it, don't share this with anybody else. By the way, I got permission to sh- talk about my conversation with Dawn. Um, so there will still be security and tranquility in our home. Um, it's a place of safety. It's a place of repose and, and a place of peace. I, I, I really, you can tell, was really overcome by this idea that our marriages should be this. There should be tranquility. It doesn't mean there's never any conflict. But what it means is you work through the conflict and you land. You, you eventually land. And, and it means that there's security and safety there. You know you can be there and you're okay. Um, you can go there and, and you can enjoy some of the work that you've done. And some of that work may be work on your relationship. But you work on your relationship and then you look back and you go, gosh, we've come so far. We've done so much better than we have in the past. Uh, marriage should be nuach. Marriage should be where you come from fluttering like a butterfly through the week. And you get to your home and you get to that relationship and you're just able to land and rest and you're safe there. Practically, what does that look like? Here's what I would tell you. Start by asking what you can do. Don't start by going, that's right, my my wife really does not make my my life very peaceful and restful. She's got too many lists for me and there's always conflict. She's just nagging at me all the time. Stop it. Ask what you can do. How can you make your marriage a place of rest? Maybe you need to figure out what the three things are that she nags you about and start doing them, dadgummit. Just come on. If you want to stop the nagging, start doing what she's nagging you about. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Wives, um, what about you? What can you do that would make your your whole house more peaceful. Um, you know, is there a focus issue that that your husband, I wish you would focus on me sometimes. Well, yeah. Stop answering the phone. Stop looking at your phone. Stop looking at Facebook, whatever you're doing. Start by asking what you can do, not asking what does the other person need to do. And then identify where you cause commotion. Sit back and, and honestly think about it and if you've got a decent marriage, ask, the, ask your spouse, where do I cause commotion? Where do I cause our peaceful marriage to kind of just go, and it starts fluttering around? Where do you cause commotion? Um, in, in what way do you enter the room and all the white flies come out of the bush? The bush. A- ask what you do that contributes to the commotion. And then I do this with couples in premarital counseling all the time. Work with the three Ds, Okay. In your marriage, there's going to be these three Ds, places where you're just different. Laugh and maximize the benefits. My wife is so much more thorough than I am. I am not thorough. I turn around and come back in the house three times every time I leave. Dawn leaves the house once, and she always has everything she needs with her. She's thorough. Now, <laughs> there's some consequences to her thoroughness sometimes, but we have to, we, you have to look at those differences and, and, and learn to laugh at them, and say, hey, we're different in this way, and then maximize them, and just say, I'm so glad that you are thorough. Um, th- there are some benefits that I bring to our marriage that are very different than Dawn, and, and she wouldn't necessarily do it that way, um, but, but we have to maximize those benefits, and learn to laugh where we're, where we're really different. Where those differences become difficulties, work it out with grace and love, Um, When you go, you know, this one's hard. This one isn't different. I can't laugh at this. Um, But mostly, I want you to have a bucket that you can laugh at. When something's going on, you need to have the laugh-at-it bucket because it's only just differences. It's not significant. So when things are going on, you need to figure out which bucket you're going to put it in. Um, A lot of times, you can just put it in the laugh-at-it bucket. Sometimes you put it in the difficulty bucket. Hey, we're going to have to work on this. Let's, let's, Let's... take some time and work ourselves through this with grace and love, asking always the question first, what can I do? Not here's what I need you to do. And then finally, if you get to a point where there's despair, get some help. Find, some, find a counselor, talk to me, call somebody, get, get some help from your home church. You know, Invite them into the situation, gosh, we're having a rough spot here and invite them into it. But, but at the very least, have some buckets you put things in where, so you can have some rest and you can have peace. Everything isn't there to despair. Don't catastrophize everything. Everything doesn't go in the despair bucket. Everything doesn't mean, oh my gosh, we're headed for divorce. Um, there are some things you can put in the bucket to say, "Hey, we've got to work on these things." But the, the bucket of differences, you ne- have three buckets. Okay, that's my advice for for marriage today. Here's what you learn about marriage: have three buckets. Okay, get yourself three buckets, put your stuff in those three buckets, and I think there'll be a lot more peace in your marriage. And marriage can be rest. You can pursue it that way. The story's going to continue. Here's how it goes. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the men until he has finished eating and drinking. Um, This whole scene is taking place. um, We don't know exactly when they got back from Moab, but the, the barley harvest is beginning. And then it's going to end with the wheat harvest. We're talking a couple of months, maybe here. Um, The barley harvest in the spring is now over. They're they're threshing the barley, um, and they're going down to this place where they would have taken the barley. Uh, They've got it all. They they have to guard it, but they're gonna they're gonna in some way they're gonna get all the seeds off the barley. Um, They're either gonna beat it. um, They eventually with wheat they, they can throw it up in the air. Um, and, and so there's, the men have to work on this, but it takes, um, it takes a little bit of time to do it. So you have to guard it in the night because people would come and steal it. It's already been harvested. They can just come take it and, and run away with it. And she says, go down to where they're, um, they're on the threshing floor, and they're threshing this barley. And what I want you to do is anoint yourself and put on your cloak. Dress up, right? Yes, that's part of it. But, but I've highlighted the word for the cloak there. Um, The word for the cloak is is more than just put on your best stuff or put on um, a coat because it's going to be cold through the night. Um, This idea of this cloak or this outer garment, this is just a note from the Net Bible. Uh, This now may refer to clothes in general or a long outer garment often worn, um, uh, uh, a long outer garment. Mourners often wore mourning clothes and refrained from washing and using cosmetics. Ruth's attire and appearance, putting on this long robe and putting on the perfume, dressing up, washing up, would signal that her period of mourning was over and she was now available for marriage. She, what, what, what Naomi is telling her is, put on your clothes that say you're no longer mourning your husband, which means now you're available for marriage. Wash up, put on some, some makeup, because in mourning. You don't wear these kind of clothes. You don't wear the makeup because you're mourning. You want to make people know you're not available. But now, by what you're wearing, you're letting them know that you are available. So dress up, be available, go down to the barley uh, threshing floor where the men are. At this point, it's already risky. Okay, this this is a bit risky. It gets more risky. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, George Schwab says, Naomi wishes to convert Boaz from a pseudo-husband to a real one, from kinsman to spouse, from available to the real deal. Uh, Naomi is basically saying, it's now time to make your move. He's paid a little bit of attention to you. Remember, he kept sending extra food home with Ruth. Naomi knows there's some attraction here, and so they're going to move to this next stage. Uh, When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, th- let's just be completely honest. This is risky. You're down on the threshing floor where all the guys have been um, working. They've eaten, drinking. They have uh, run down for, uh, they've, they've laid down for the night. After they've drank enough, we're going to find out they're, um, they're merry, not drunk, because they're guarding the food. But they're, they're, they're relaxed, and she's going to go down, lie down beside him, and uncover his feet. We're going to figure out what in the world is going on here. Basically, it's a proposal for marriage. I'll show you that. She's proposing marriage, but this is a risky way to do it. It is how you would do it, but it's a little bit of a risky way to do it. But it's not just risky because of the sexual tensions that are in the passage that I'm going to highlight. It's risky because of what he might do. Um... I have a friend somewhere in the world, Czech Republic, who is visiting a friend of his somewhere else in the world, Macedonia, and yesterday we were texting back and forth, and he is um, visiting this friend, and he told me yesterday that he uh, was going to define the relationship with her, Um, and he uh, was nervous about it, because he's not sure what she's going to say. Now, he's gone all the way to Macedonia to visit her, and he's going to um, define the relationship. And he's really nervous. I think this is the same kind of tension that's going on here. What could happen? Let me give you just some examples. Boaz could mock her as a gold digger. Boaz could say, Ruth, I'm a wealthy person. Are you just trying to take advantage of me just to get my money? Gosh, I gave you some extra, um, I gave you some extra grain. You want more? He could reject her as a foreign woman. She's already been called Ruth the Moabitess. Um, You're from those loose women from across the river. He could actually take advantage of her. He could actually take advantage of her, and then he could ruin her reputation by saying, this loose woman, she's a Moabitess, look what she did. She came down, she seduced me when I was drunk. Um, boy, it's risky for her to go down there Um, for a lot of different reasons. But Ruth replies, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Um, So this is a plan. This is Naomi's plan to get her married. Go down there, uncover his feet, and um, you're dressed up, letting him know you're no longer in mourning. Snuggle up next to him. And then Ruth, or Naomi, you have to remember, Naomi has said, do what he tells you to do then. He's already been identified as a man of high integrity. He's already living with Hesed. So as they make their way down, what you're going to see is God's going to help, uh, help the needy through the gracious provision of others. Remember, Naomi and Ruth are in a really difficult situation. Both of them widows... Both of them uh, with no land, because when Elimelech, Naomi's husband, when he left the land, someone else got the land. So they have no land. They have no husbands. They're in really difficult situations. And and God is going to use this man of honor to take care of the situation. Now we're going to have an interaction. Ruth is going to trust God's plan for gracious provision, even though it's risky. She's stepping out into a risky situation. Boaz is going to respond to the request to generously provide uh, something that's often surprising. What is is highlighted with Boaz is he's surprised by what happens. What is true with Ruth is that she is um, very clear that she's asking for provision, even though this is a risky situation. Here we go. And when Boaz had eaten and drank, by the way, he's not drinking Kool-Aid. This is probably barley beer. But he's not drunk. Um, These guys have not gotten drunk because they're guarding the grain. Um, His heart was merry, but not drunk, still able to guard the grain. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. I want to just encourage you. This is another one of those. He just happened to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, not in the middle of the stack. He's over on the side where Ruth can actually get to him. Um, Ruth isn't having to step over everybody else. He's out on the side. He's out on the edge. And so Ruth is able to get to him without disturbing anybody else. Then she came softly. The word can be used mysteriously. It's kind of a sneaky word. She snuck in. Okay? She is quietly, softly sneaking in to this guy who's over on the edge of the grain. She uncovered his feet and laid down under his garment. Okay? Now, you can start to imagine all kinds of things you want to imagine. And I want to begin by saying, "It nothing happens, but it could have. And the passage is trying to get you to see that it could have gone terribly, terribly wrong. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman was laying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. She's been called a servant earlier. It's another word for a servant. The other word for a servant is kind of a menial woman servant. This is, I'm your female servant ready, available to be married. And then she says the key phrase. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings. Some translations do the the literal thing. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Take the corner of your garment And I'm kind of here, but what I want you to do is I want you to cover me. And this is the symbol that you're going to marry me. Let me show you the biblical symbol with God in Ezekiel. Kind of an odd passage here. This is God talking to Israel. Then I passed by you and watched you, noticing that you had reached the age for love. This is God talking to Israel. I spread my cloak over you, I spread the edge of my garment over you, or I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. I swore a solemn oath to you and entered into a marriage covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. This this symbol of, of spreading the cloak over is the symbol of accepting the pledge to marry somebody. Um, if this was done in a much more formal setting, maybe where um, the parents had arranged this, what would happen is... Uh, they would have a party and the groom would take his cloak and in the middle of everybody, he would take the cloak and he would walk up and he would put it on the fiance. Um, it, it is saying, yes, I'm going to be the protection for you. Okay. Now we need to talk about all the stuff that's going on in this passage. Um, we are adults and we're going to read this passage uh, like it should be read. Um, One does find in this passage a cluster of terms that sometimes have sexual connotation. This is striking and may be intended for literary effect. I'm going to tell you the effect of it. Um, the word lie down, the word know, and the word enter are all sexual terms. Okay? Um, she's at night. She's dressed up. She smells good. She's under the blanket. And then we use these terms. She's lying down with him. She, they know and, and enter. All these are sexualized terms. What's going on? Lawson Younger says there's no doubt that the scene on the threshing floor is sexually provocative. But the narrator consistently and constantly presents both Ruth and Boaz as individuals with unmatched integrity whose lives exhibit the faithful loyalty to relationships described by the word chesed it to God, it to one another. They're not going to take advantage of God and violate God's laws, and they're not going to take advantage of one another. It is evident that his silence, the narrator's silence, means to imply here that they met this moment of choice with the same integrity. Here's what I'm trying to set up. It could have happened. This is a sexually charged um, scene. The point I want to really make here is just like our world today. Just like our world today, and these two lived with integrity in the middle of it. One rabbi, Jewish scholar, says this, the words do not refer to actual sexual activity in Ruth 3. Taken alone out of the context of the chapter, these ambiguous words could point to the occurrence of sexual activity, but the configuration of the words, the sense of the sentences which they form, points in the opposite direction. Um, Here's what he's saying. It could have happened but it's arranged to say it didn't happen. Here's what he goes on to say. The narrative tells straightforwardly that no sexual activity took place at the threshing floor. That final resolution awaits the city gate. All the while, however, the vocabulary of the scene indicates it might have that the atmosphere was sexually charged. That's the ambivalence. The words point to what might have been all the while emphasizing the opposite reality. In a a culture where... Samson is living, okay? Where Samson's taking advantage of every sexual opportunity he's got, the time when the judges ruled. And in a very specific scene where there are some men who've worked hard, who've had a little bit to drink, and there's all kinds of sexual opportunities going on, these two lived with purity. By the way, one of the reasons, in addition to it, would be totally not in keeping with their. Um, character is how it's described. These are people um, who are um, hayal, virtuous. It would be out of keeping with how the rest of the book describes them. The other thing is, if they did have sex on the threshing floor, the law would say they had to get married, that they would have to have gotten married. There'd be no reason for Boaz to do what he does in the next chapter and go meet at the city gate and say, who's the, you know, is there a closer relative? No way. That's not what would have happened. They would have had to have gotten married. Uh, Bob Chisholm, the narrator is contributing to the theme of Boaz and Ruth being impeccable in their character. At the barley threshing floor, under cover of night, with the smell of fertility in the air, some might have capitulated to physical desire, but not Boaz and Ruth, who moved toward the consummation of their relationship in a proper, morally upright manner. This whole passage is sexually charged. Our whole culture... Our whole lives are sexually charged all around us. And everybody is saying, you can't help it. You can help it. We live in a culture where um, the statistics tell us that men who are under 35, 100% of them struggle with pornography. Because you don't have to go looking for pornography. It is looking for you. The statistics also tell us that 66% of the women under 35 are dealing with pornography issues as well. It used to be that guys struggled with it because they found it somewhere. Folks, wake freaking up. It is everywhere. It's looking for you. It is trying to take you and your children down. But in that context, in that context, you and I and your children can live like Boaz and Ruth. It's possible. These people are inspiring, and they should inspire us. So here's what I'm going to say about sexual purity. If you have uh, failed, ask for forgiveness. Commit yourself to sexual purity in every area of your life. If you failed in your past, in college, currently, last night, if you failed, confess it and ask and commit yourself to sexual purity in every area. For your own sake and for the glory of Christ, embrace the strategic righteousness of Ruth and Boaz. This is how uh, John Piper describes it. He describes it as strategic righteousness strategically choose to be righteous for for God's glory and your benefit, because a lack of sexual purity doesn't just damage you, it it does, by the way, unbelievable research for how pornography damages you. It, It damages you, it damages your relationships, it damages the cause of Christ. And finally, God honored Boaz and Ruth, and he'll honor you If you you make a decision to be sexually pure and if if you will honestly talk with your children, your grandchildren, about the need for all of this, God will honor that. He honored Boaz and Ruth with the birth of a baby and then a great-grandson that was David and a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson that was Jesus Christ. Make that decision. I'm going to end with a quote from John Piper. John Piper says this, the sexual temptations of our day are pervasive and powerful just like they were that night in Bethlehem. Think of it. Perhaps this triumph of purity took place near the very spot where a thousand years later a virgin would give birth to Jesus, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of a pure union between Boaz and Ruth. We don't know for sure, we know it's the same town the same town where this sexually charged scene is taking place. And intentionally, the book goes out of its way to say, yes, this is a sexually charged scene, but these two lived with purity in the midst of it. In the very same town, and I think Piper wonderfully imagines, maybe at the very same spot, maybe that's where Mary gave birth to the descendant, of Boaz and Ruth. This is a huge, huge uh, challenge in our day. Um, Ken Way summarizes this passage like this. God's blessings are often realized through audacious acts of love that inspire others to similar behavior. That's what I hope this passage does. I hope this, I'm not an inspiring preacher. I'm an informational preacher, not inspiring. I hope this passage inspires you in the midst of chaos, in the midst of crazy things, um, you can make the right choice, and God will honor it. Here's how I would summarize it. Waiting to find rest in the providence of God is often risky and surprising. But wait. Wait to find your rest. Work to find your rest. Sometimes it's risky. You may have to be humble in your marriage. You may have to risk some things in your marriage, risk talking about some things that you have needed to talk about for a long time. But if you're going to find risk in, in your marriage, you probably are going to find some surprising good things and some risky things that you're going to have to do as well. So here are my next steps for today. Discuss with someone how you determine what is risky, okay? Uh, the, the categories I often use uh, when our elders are, are working through things is, what's what's feasible? What requires faith and what is foolish? Don't do what's feasible. Don't do what's foolish. Do what requires you to really trust God. What would that look like in your life today? Then I want to ask the question, why is, it, why is wait, waiting for God's provision so hard and so worth it? When you have experienced this, when have you gotten impatient and messed it up? Um, think about the times you waited and it paid off, and think about the times you didn't wait and it really messed it up. And learn a lesson. And then finally, is there a place in your life where you're being asked to be an instrument of God's grace to someone else, where you're being asked to be Boaz, an instrument of God's grace to someone else? What are you doing about it? Are you taking God's loyal love and passing it on to other people?